And one of the big statistics that hit me hard was this uh, stat that over 150 million Americans say they cry about their money. Straight from his mom's basement, today we get to talk to the man in the industry who loves board games, and we find out why he likes his dentist so much. Today's guest is Joe Salcihai, and today we're talking about the FIRE movement, how Joe helps clients understand to enjoy the journey as much as the prize, and how Joe showed his clients to analyze the game to help them understand the future. At the age of 41, he sold his firm, and he became a high school teacher and coach. Joe explains why he believes the advisor's job is to make you smarter and go faster through life. We open up a great conversation, and you're not going to want to miss this one. Joe Salcihai is the creator and co-host of the Stacking Benjamins show, and he recently released Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management. The Hardy Boys Detective Manual meets the Cub Scout Wolf Guide. He has won gold in the Axiom Business Book Award in the personal finance and retirement planning investing category. And the book recently reached number one with Forbes' top five personal finance books to read in 2022. In this episode, we dive into the book and Joe gives us an insider's guide to each chapter of the book. Let's get into it. This is Bridging the Gap. With your host, Matt Reiner. Joe Sal, hi. How are you? Good to be talking with you. How's everything going with you? It's going fantastic, man. And I'm super happy to be here. I mean, the whole reason I wrote a book was so I could be on Bridging the Gap. And so I'm here to announce my retirement. It doesn't get any better. This is the top of the mountain. Hey, you know what? You aren't. I wish I could say you're the first to say that, but it happens every day <laughs> on this podcast that people come on to make their biggest announcements on this podcast right here, and it's incredible to hear you. Congratulations on that! And I, you know, retirement, the book. We're gonna get into the book first, but uh, congratulations on all of that, man. <laughs> yeah, that may or may not be true. Hey. Being on here, don't get me wrong. Being on here highlighted my career, but hey. retiring, I might go another day or two. You're you're too kind. You're too kind. But Joe, I'm, I'm excited. I mean, you've got so much experience in financial, you know, financial management, talking to talking to your your audience with Stacking Benjamins. And you just have this background of, of marketing and writing books that are simple and understanding for people to understand. And I, I just would love to know, you know, just start off the journey to getting to starting Stacking Benjamins what led you to do that? And then ultimately writing books. And then I want to dive into some of your outlooks regarding financial planning, because I think it can be so helpful for advisors and how they can communicate not only with their current clients, but also the next generation of clients as well. Well, I, it was a long journey to creating Stacking Benjamins. I, I was a financial planner actually for 16 years. And during that time, I was also for nine of those years, a media spokesman for American Express for their financial advising division at the time and did a lot of media stuff. And that's really what what ultimately led me to the podcast because I had I actually had a lot more fun talking to big groups of people than I did as a financial planner. Don't get me wrong, I like being a financial planner, but I took my work home with me a lot. 2000 to 2002 was just watching 
people's goals go south when you did everything right. You diversified appropriately. You kept people out of loading up in technology like everybody wanted to in 99 and 2000. I got fired by somebody, by the way, because their buddy's portfolio did in the 70, 80% range. And I think my client only had like 45%. And I wasn't even the type of planner that based results on, you know, on getting a return. It was based on meeting your goals, about having the money where you wanted it. So to get fired based on base based on a return of 45% just showed you how crazy that market was. And again, in 2007, 2008, it was really tough. But around that time, a friend of mine who was really a mentor, he, uh, he, he wrote a letter giving like two weeks notice. And the type of firm that I was at was not the kind of business where you gave two weeks notice. It was the kind of, you ever see Jerry Maguire? <laughs> It was, it was, it was much more like you leave at midnight, like on that movie and everybody at 4am is calling the client, waking them up, trying to get the client before the other person does. So the fact that he gave notice at all was a weird thing, but he, he wrote this great letter saying he had saved a, a nice sum of money. He'd done a really good job of saving and he felt fortunate that he'd had time to be a financial planner, but he spent so much time doing it. He didn't know what he really wanted to do. And he knew that that wasn't it, that there were other things. And he actually used this cool phrase, he said he thought he had other mountains to climb. Mm. And I thought that was a metaphor, but it turned out he climbed Everest twice. He's, he climbed most of, he's climbed most of the tall peaks on earth and he really was an inspiration. And I was turning 40 and I kind of felt the same way. I felt like, you know what? I've done a good job of saving. I was a money mess up at the beginning and I share my horror stories with money early on in our book. But I I had turned my ship around. I'd done a really good job of saving and I decided to sell my business and to go become a high school teacher. High school teachers don't get paid a lot, but I really wanted to teach English and something different than money management and become a, my wife and I met as middle school track coaches. So I wanted to do that and went back to school and I was very bored in school. And I was also getting straight A's and at the same time learning from these great professors that I was going to spend a lot of time fighting administrators like I would. And you know what's funny, Matt? Clients of mine, when I sold my business and I was introducing them to their new financial planner, they were excited for me. My teaching clients were excited for me, but they said the same thing. They're like, you're going to be a good teacher, but it's not what you think it is. You're mm. going to be teaching to these tests, to these standardized tests. And sure enough, um, that was what my professors were teaching me. So at the same time, I was writing this PR stuff because I'd done, I was the money man in Detroit for nine years on one of the top TV stations. I had had a radio show. I had done all this PR stuff and I really enjoyed it. So people were hiring me in my spare time to just write their client newsletter or to write their scripts or when they were doing TV stuff, whatever it was. And then I did the math after about six months of it and realized I'm making as much as a first year teacher, but I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. Don't get me wrong. You don't get into it for the money, but I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. My kids are in high school. They're at a brand new school and I get to be home for them every day. I get to go to all their stuff. And so that ultimately became a blog. And then uh, about 10 about 11 years ago, we started talking about, about this idea of doing a podcast. And just over 10 years ago, we started the podcast. And now we're 1,200 episodes in and having a blast teaching people in a very light way about money. 
That is unreal. And I think that the pinnacle is actually for me having someone that's done over a thousand episodes on a podcast on my podcast, because then that <laughs> means that my podcast now has made it. I've made it to the point. I've made it to the pinnacle. So I think, you know, it all just comes full circle here early on in the podcast of yeah. the uh, of the value. Now, you know, I you mentioned something that I, I just want to go down a rabbit hole for a second, because it's happening now in the in the economy, in the world. You know, you mentioned that you were turning 40, you wanted to try something new. This other gentleman that you would work with, you know, said that he had literally mountains to climb, not figuratively. And, you know, it just brings back this idea of, you know, the great resignation that everybody's talking Mm. about, right? The younger generation that's just resigning and going and traveling and doing is I'm wondering, I guess my question is, is like, is the great resignation actually something that's new or is it just getting spotlighted because of of covid and and kind of the pandemic and what that's shown in the difficult hiring environment we're in one that's one part of the question and then two is what are your thoughts on the great recession resignation right now is it real what's the impact i'd love your perspective on it given that you made a big career change early on in your career the numbers certainly the companies i mean companies as as big as you know i was reading just recently that companies as big as disney having trouble just reopening because they can't find enough people to do these jobs right so i think it is real just based on the statistics that we're seeing from these different companies and the employment numbers that are out there but the but it i think it really excites me it excites me because for a long time i feel like the business owners have been really in charge and have their pick of people and hey you're going to do what i want to do and if i want to be a jerk to you while i'm working then i get to be a jerk to you and i think now the onus is on the other foot it's like what can i do as a business owner to make sure that my people stay here and to make sure that everybody's involved and by the way as a guy who's in a creative field now I really like that because I like when I go into a restaurant, when I'm working with a business, I don't like dealing with people who are half checked out because their boss is a jerk and thinks that just by paying them a little more money, that that should quote motivate them or they could be, no, that's, I don't think that's how it works. So I think having a much better relationship between employer and employee about what we're really after. I think is pretty exciting. Uh, I was just lucky to talk to Stephen M.R. Covey about this. Uh, Stephen, the son of, you know, Stephen Covey, the seven habits, highly effective people. And Stephen was telling me that, that, you know, we really, with the great resignation, it's a great time for employers to go from this idea of command and control to trust and inspire. You know, and as you know, as an employer, it's hard to be a trusted and inspire person. Like when you're, when my employees mess stuff up, I just want to go do it myself. And that's not it. I got to trust them to, to get it right later on. I have to inspire them to do a better job and, and teach them to own it. So we all own it. So I actually think the great resignation for all the bumps in the road that it is right now is a pretty, pretty good thing. You know, it's such an interesting, you know, flipping it on its head perspective because it's a matter of now it's going to force companies, like you said, who had control to be creative and innovative and rethink how they are as employers, right? Yeah. How how do they, you know, how do they have their work schedule? It used to be you're in it from nine to five, five days a week. You know, you can't be flex. You have to use these technologies. You have to do X, Y, and Z. Now they have to rethink that. And so it could create even more innovative and inspiring companies because they have to rethink the way that they employ. 
Um, do you remember? Which could be really interesting. Yeah. Do you remember Jack Welch in the 1990s? Yeah. Like like Jack Welch in the 90s. For people that are younger listening, people you know business people would quote Jack Welch the same way everybody quotes Warren Buffett right now. Right. Mm-hmm. He was this guru, this business guru. Some people hated him because he would fire a bunch of people at his companies that weren't working out. But his rationale for firing them. And also was the same rationale with him inspiring his people was that he's like, if you stink at this, why would you keep doing it? Like, like why, if this isn't a fit, why would you stay here? And clearly based on your numbers, you're not a fit here. So go someplace else. This isn't, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's about me at general electric, but it's also about you and you only get one chance to live your best life. And if this isn't it, don't stay around for a 4% raise or whatever it might be like, get on with your life. But I remember him getting some, some pushback from investors in the mid nineties because he kept writing about empowering employees and that's all he did. And I remember somebody pushing back and saying, Hey, isn't it about your customer? It's not about your employees. It's about your customer. And Jack said, Jack turned it around and said, wait a minute, I can either try to impress my customers with my two hands, or I can make my job making my people inspired so that they take way better. Like if I focus all my energy on my employees, my employees are going to spend all their energy on our customers and it's all going to be this great, great mix. So yeah, hopefully we're headed that way with more An exponential impact, right? My two hands yes. can have, if I can touch a hundred employees and I can touch a million clients, that's better than what I can do just myself, right? That's Absolutely. the whole mentality that it needs to be and it needs to be inspiring. And I love that idea of, you know, inspiring people, letting them fail, letting them figure it out instead of stepping in, right? That is like such a new mentality. And there's something that comes to this that as, as you were talking, it, it, it's just something that may be another outlier of this is that, you know, we're flipping the way that now companies may not have full control. It may be in the control of the employees or the the, the people that are being hired. I wonder if that's the same way with colleges then, right? You know, you think about college cost and you think about the debt, you know, college debt, and you think about you know how real world experience helps people grow drastically and college may not be at that level i wonder if that's the next domino to fall because people if 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 the employee is so hard to find they control it then employers may not demand that you have to have a college tuition which means that mm. you can save money get into the workforce and maybe do technical college that's more specific to exactly what you want to do maybe go through the cfp Go through the CFA if you want to get into wealth management or investment management. Go, you know, go to a technical college if you want to be an engineer and just go do it for two years. And I wonder if it shapes that conversation, which would be super interesting. You know, that's a 10, 20 year down the road type of, you know, evolution that would happen from this great resignation. I'd love to see that. I would love to see that. I don't get the feeling talking to people like we're, to your point, I don't think we're, we're close to that yet. Sadly, I feel like too many people just press the automatic. No, you're my kid. You're going to college button versus considering the ROI. I'm on this book tour and been going around the country. And when I was in Tampa, I met a kid who was 18 years old and it decided had done the ROI calculation, decided that he would become an entrepreneur. He, he, he is really, really good at editing videos. And he hooked up with a bunch of creators like you and I and became a video editor and he's swamped with business. And he said, that doesn't mean he's never going to go to college, but studies show that people that take a, a break year, that take it, that get out into the world first and learn what really your professor wants are much more likely to get through school faster, to get higher grades and to apply 
buy more of the stuff. Mm. So seeing this kid who's 18, it was just such an outlier for me, Matt. It was just so different. I would love to see that every day. <laughs> to your point, I'd love to see it all the time. But I was like, wow, this is fantastic. This is yeah. amazing. But I, yeah, I not agree. enough people on that train. I agree. I think that we need to get more on that train. Well, we're going to solve the world's problems, but uh, but what you're <laughs> focused on is solving financial and getting financial kind of foundation and, and literacy and, and better financial lives. And there's one thing that you talk about a lot with regards to your financial journey and envisioning your financial journey and how to help people, you know, reach their financial goals. And, and you talk about having, you know, writing it down, visualizing it, drawing it out, whatever it may be. What led you to say that this is the way that financial, because, you know, a lot of people say, I'm just going to go do an e-money plan or a money guide pro plan. And I'm just yeah. going to have all this like cash flow analysis, but you're saying, write it out, draw it out, visualize it, envision it. What led you to come to this realization that this is the way that we go about financial planning that's effective and impactful? It was, it was trial and error. It was when I was a financial planner, we would set up goals and then we'd meet again next time. And people weren't even paying attention to those goals. Like, you know, I mean, it's the same thing with new year's resolutions, right? We, we set these new year's resolutions and I bet two people listening are still working on their new year's resolutions. Everybody's already forgotten them. That's listening to you and I right now. And I think, I think the reason is, is real life gets in the way of, of these big time goals. And yet there's this study that was done by this group called nonfiction. It's called the secret financial lives of Americans. And what a great study this is. And I think everybody should read it because it is some horrifying numbers of what's really going on under the hood. And you've seen it working with clients. And I saw it back in the day when I worked with clients that we're all having these fears. We're all doing worse than we pretend we are on Instagram and TikTok, but we, but, but we can't say it out loud. And one of the big statistics that hit me hard was this uh, stat that over 150 million Americans say they cry about their money. Over 150 million. That's a huge number. And you'd think, by the way, that's people living paycheck to paycheck, Matt. And certainly the percentages are higher, people living paycheck to paycheck. But listen to this. People making more than $250,000 a year, nearly half of those people say they're crying about their money. And for those people, it's not paycheck to paycheck. You know what I think it is? I think it's that their values are going one way. These goals that we would talk about are going one way and their money's going in a completely different direction, right? There's this big disconnect. So what I wanted to do, and I got this idea from vision boards and I've seen how much vision boards have worked from people and talking to, I had a couple of clients that was very lucky that were in neuroscience that were, one was a professor at the local university and one was a doctor. And we would talk about the fact that, um, in fact, I remember one conversation where a guy was telling me that when we're born, we immediately, if we're sighted, we immediately see things, right? So the vast majority of people see things, right? We have to learn language. So if we write down our goals, if we use words to write down our goals, that's one thing. But if we can visualize them and visualize them against each other, now we're much more likely to internalize it because we've been doing it since we were born. So, um, so I, one day I had a whiteboard in my office one day, just got up with this, these clients. Cause 
I, I could see that they had all these goals and they weren't going to be able to reach them all. And I said, okay. And I put them on the left of my whiteboard as stick people. And I said, okay, here's the two of you. And I just drew a line across the board. And I said, all right, you want to put your two kids through college? And I made circles. And then I said, all right, you tell me you want to retire at 55. And I put another circle that went to the end of their life. And then I just pointed at the circles and I went, okay, how much does junior number one's college cost? Like how much money you need for that? And you know what they said, the same thing everybody says, I have no idea. So what, what rate of return do we need? How much money do you say? I have no idea. What about kid number two? I have no idea. What about retirement? Again, no idea what that calculation is. And what was cool was when, when we started putting their plan together, we saw that we couldn't get all of those goals as is, but we could definitely, we were in the ballpark, but we weren't going to get them all. So then we had these, I think the, I think the, the, the technical word is kick-ass conversation. <laughs> we had this great values-based conversation about what's more important. So was it more important to pay for your two kids college, a hundred percent of it and retire at 55 Or if you paid for 75% of it and then came up with a strategy for the other 25%, either teaching them how to save during high school years or college, whatever it is, and getting 55. Or are they okay with pushing back retirement till 60 and instead paying 100%? So then we have this great conversation about what college means to me. And what retirement means to me that we don't have if we just write down our goals. And I think that kind of MME making your goal, making your goals fight it out against each other in this ring is, <laughs> is, is those are the conversations we want to have. And when we have those, we stop crying about our money because we know that the things we're saving for and the way we're saving is meeting this thing that I know I really care about. I mean, there's there's a few things I take away from that, right? It's the visual versus written. And if you can draw it, then you write it and you visualize it and you talk about it, right? That's the power, I think, of video, right? That's why yeah. the video is so good. You see, you hear, right? You get both of it. It's better than the phone and it's better than email because you, you get to say words that you can say in email, but you can see what you can't do on the phone, right? And it's a combination. And that's what the drawing is. And you know, there's, there's one thing that you alluded to. It's the haves versus the wants, right? And this is like the happiness equation because there's like an equation and I forget who exactly said it, but you know, if you think about your happiness coefficient, it's basically an equation of your wants on the denominator and your haves on the numerator. And you know how equations work. If you're, if your denominator goes too high, your, your, you know, efficient goes down lower. Right. And so everybody has all these wants, which they keep striving for, but they're never satisfied with their halves. And that wants number just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger, which makes them just not happy, which no matter how much money you have, your wants just continue to get larger, which means that your happiness equation continues to get lower. And that's why some people that have so much less are so much happier because they just, whatever they have, they're happy with, and they really don't have many wants and their wants are very minimal. And so they had like the happiness equation, it just gets larger and, and smaller as you get more money. And I think it's such an interesting dynamic that happens in psychology of people 
and why we could all be so much more happier if we just enjoyed what we have. Yeah, or, or in, enjoy we well and enjoy the journey as much as the as much as the prize. I feel like, you know, a big knock on the fire movement, the financial independence retire early movement, is is that there are some people that are chasing this thing that you and I know is not going to make them happier. You're not going to get to this thing and be happy that you're fire, that you finally can retire whenever you want. You know who did who did this really well. There's a great old Saturday Night Live where Adam Sandler, Adam Sandler is playing this person who gives these these tours of Italy, and he's from this old school Italian family, and he does this really bad Italian accent. Where he's like, oh, "Welcome to the to, to the whatever. We, we take you to Rome. We take you to Tuscany. We take you to Venice," and and he shows all these places. But then he says this thing that is funny because it's so true. He said, he said, Hey, I know you might've seen some bad reviews of our tours and I just have to give you this caveat. If you're unhappy at home right now in your life, you will still be unhappy in Rome. <laughs> you will still be unhappy. If your marriage isn't working out now, your marriage will still be on the rocks in Venice. Like there is, there, that's not going to change it. And I think it's exactly what we're talking about. Like if you don't enjoy the ride and you think that more, more, more is going to get you there. I mean, that's a lie. It's this, it's a sad, sad, sad lie. There's a, there's an episode of, it's called Imposters, which is a podcast done by the founder of Morning Brew, that newsletter that, that oh, has yeah. risen. And there's a, a lady on there who, who started a company called Tushy. And it was talking about how her, she was just driven because she always wanted to be accepted. And she thought that if she kept on achieving, that she would finally reach that level of being accepted. And it was something that like she learned early on and she kept on achieving and never found happiness. And she just kept on driving and driving and never found this happiness until she, she got a business coach, she got a psychologist, right? She finally started to learn about herself and understand herself that what she was striving for would never make her happy because she wasn't happy with who she was at that moment in time. And she was always reaching for the next thing. And I mean, from a financial wellness standpoint, that's exactly what the challenges of clients that I see. They're always thinking, well, once I get to retirement, life is going to be good. Once I hit a million dollars, everything's going to be easier. Once yeah. I pay off my house, life is going to be easy. No, if you have issues, if you have challenges, that doesn't matter because they're always going to have another challenge if you're always waiting for that moment. And life is going to just, and everybody's like, well, why does life go so fast? Well, it's because we can't live in the dang present. Right. We're always looking for the next thing. That's what it's drove really me crazy as a financial planner too. I was so busy planning my next week and planning my client's future. I was constantly not present. And I feel so bad that I remember so little of my career. Like, and I know there were magic moments we had with other people. I don't remember them, Matt. And it scares the hell out of me that mm -hmm. I didn't do that. And so for me, getting out of that business, for me specifically, not for everybody, was so, was so, so important. You know, it's, but, we, but that leads to another fallacy. Another fallacy that I saw all the time as a financial planner, which drove me crazy, and my mom says that comparison is the thief of joy, which is how am I doing versus everybody else, right? I mean, how often do people ask you that question? I'm like, no, don't, no, don't go there. It doesn't it, matter. 
It so all, doesn't matter. All the time. And it doesn't, and everybody's like, well, how are your other people? How much does your other people spend on a monthly basis? How much do they have? I'm like, it doesn't matter because their likes and their desires and what they need to cover is completely different than you. And I can show you how you can retire with $500,000, or I can show you how you can retire with $2 million. It, it doesn't make one better than the other. It's a matter of what you you desire inside yeah. only of what you yeah. want from there. And, and you know, I, I think it's, I mean, the psychology aspect, and, and I want to talk about that because I want to talk about how advisors, because advisors are doing it now too. They're looking at other advisors. They're trying to stay up with the trends. And I, and I think there's a psychology element because we're all humans as well. But before I go, I want to ask you about this business that you and I can go into, right? You talk about drawing, <laughs> right? You talk about drawing and visualizing where it is. And then you can have this conversation with your clients about, you know, if we take this away, can you push out retirement? This is what it would look like, et cetera. And you were doing it on a whiteboard, rightfully so, because that's what we have today. But that's why I think virtual reality has a space, has a spot in our space, just think about this. You put some goggles on your client. You start visualizing it, what it looks like walking their kids to college, what their bank account's like. They have to go draw the money. Then they can fast forward and see themselves visually in 55 or 60, and they can start seeing what these decisions mean, and they can go play the game. They can start playing the game in real life, and you can help analyze it with them. But think about the power that that would have on people and the decisions that they make today, and also helping to fill that void that everybody wants to look in the future, but also helping them see what an impact makes today. Well, what I love about that idea is that there was a study I just saw recently, and I never knew this. You know, we always wonder why people have a hard time saving for their future self. And the reason is, and you may have seen this already, Matt, but it's because our brain does not recognize that this person in the future is actually us. When we put money into our 401k plan, our brain literally thinks I'm saving this for somebody else. And it's this future person that isn't me. It's this future version of me. And so we don't want to do it. Because, you know, now me and my lizard brain, I want to go to the sizzler and get the appetizer, you know, instead of putting extra money away. So I think I think being able to visualize that as you in that future state, like I also like that I saw a thing recently, too, where, you know, it ages you. It says, here's what you're going to look like 20 years from now. And it just gives you crow's feet around your eyes and kind of shows you like I think those exercises are so helpful for people to actually go. Yeah, you're going to show up. And when you show up, you want to have some money when you get there. So, yeah. Well, I mean, it's always it's always so funny. I mean, psychology, I mean, you think about any of the behavioral psychologists or, you know, like Daniel Kahneman or any of those guys and, and gals that are in that space that are so smart in terms of understanding just the reality of it as opposed to, you know, based on rational thinking, but we're all irrational is, I mean, everybody's like, well, rationally, yes, of course you should start saving when you're 20 years old. Of course it makes sense. You you grow a penny every every minute, then you have a million dollars in 30 days. Like, of course that's rational. But like me at 30 years old being like, okay, I'm going to save for my 65-year-old self, which is literally a lifetime away. I can't even rationalize yeah. what yeah. 35 years is because I've never lived that way. And so there's has to be psychological, you have to overcome psychological barriers. And I'm intrigued how you help people and how you think advisors can help people do that. I think it's through drawing it out. But you know, and also now with social media, which is just raging and you're always comparing to people, I just think that psychology is just much more of a value of a financial advisor of handling and managing psychology than it is of investment management these days. 
I, 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 man, this is a, this is a, not even a rabbit hole. This is a huge hole because, and I actually have a chapter in my book for, you know, potential clients of advisors called how to find an advisor that won't bleed you dry. But, but I think that that psychology begins right at the beginning. Like I tell people in my book that if you walk into a financial planner's office and they're playing Kramer, you know, sell, 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 or Fox business or whatever it is, like you need to run. I think that the psychology starts in the lobby or with your, you know, if, if, if you're getting clients online, it's, it starts with what that virtual experience is. And if it's about the travel channel or, you know, doing whatever you want, cooking class, you know what I mean? These aspirations things that people tend to put off. Like, I think that's way better. And I also tell people, by the way, as an aside, that if, if the advisors help, and this goes back to the great resignation, if the receptionist, and, and by the way, I, you know, I, I gave talks all the time. So I was in a ton of financial planners offices. I, I don't know even many financial planners that have been in half the offices I've been in, but I'll tell you this, Matt, whenever the receptionist sucked, if the receptionist was bitter or didn't care, whatever it was, that always, always came from the boss. That financial planner they worked for was not a people person and not great mm-hmm. at their job. And, and, and because they're a reflection of them. So I think that, you know, I would tell people that, but, but, but I think that, I think that not only, not only is it behavioral, but that also leads to advisors being much more collaborative. Like we're talking here about helping people do these values discussions. Like that's not something that, you know, I became a financial planner in, in late 93, early 94. We weren't having those conversations at all when I first started. But by the time I left, that was the majority of my time and it was way more effective. In fact, at the end of my career, I started thinking myself more as my client's agent. Like my client is, is Taylor Swift and my job is to make Taylor's job easy. So Taylor goes and is a rock star and I'm making sure everything else gets handled as good as it can. And by the way, not by taking it away from her, but by making her smarter and making sure that she's delegating to the right team of people so that she can do the thing that goes faster. But, you know, this idea of having advisors around you that take it away, I think, I think that's bad. I think it's bad for everybody. I write yeah. in, I write in this book that I think your advisor's job is to make you smarter and to go faster. And, th- and by the way, it combats this fallacy that advisors don't see that much, but I see all the time online, which is, Whenever somebody in an online forum, which I belong to a lot of these, and they will eat your soul, by the way, some of the bad advice people give to each other, but they'll say, hey, my financial advisor said I should do this. What do you guys think? Well, you know exactly what happens in that forum. You fire them. Fire your advisor. You don't need your advisor. And you know why? It's because... It's because, and this is the, this is where the fallacy in people's thinking comes in. It's because of the fact that you're smart enough to do this yourself, right? You don't need to advise. You're smart enough to do this yourself. And, and my reply to that is that's always the wrong answer. Like my clients were vice presidents at car companies and tech companies that had offices in Detroit. Like these people were hella smart. They owned companies. They were way smart enough to do my job. It wasn't about that. Taylor Swift, I, I love that analogy, is hella smart. She could probably do the financial planning stuff too. 
but, but, but why wouldn't she surround herself with smart people? Like that, I, I want to be the dumbest person in every room I walk into. I want people to tell me when I'm stepping in it. And I think by the way, and that's a, that's an ax I have to grind against a lot of advisors. I don't think we tell our clients enough when, when they're stepping in it. I think we, I think we get so afraid that the, the client's going to fire us that we don't tell them, Hey, you are messing this up. And I'll tell you this, Matt, when I left financial planning, I was getting good at that. And, and I'll tell you, I have more people wanting to hire me when I, when I sold my business than ever before, because I realized that's why they hired me. People mm -hmm. hired me to go, you know what, you know, I love you. You know, I'm in your corner, you know, I got your back, but you are screwing this up so bad and I can't let you continue. And when I did that kind of Gordon Ramsay approach more, people threw money at me. Like they, they were like, how do I get you more? How do I get this more? And boy, was that a powerful relationship. Well, early in my career, it was always that I felt that I had to say what I thought the client wanted to hear, right? That's how yeah, everybody yeah. is. And that's how advisors are. They don't want to, they don't want to get fired. They say what they, they think that the client wants to hear. They may throw around some cool data points and numbers to think, make them look smart, but really what the client wants and what I, to your point, when I started just telling the client straight up that they were being, they were being, you know, idiotic, they were making the wrong move. They were thinking of it the wrong way. You're not, you're being silly and being direct with them. You're right. They had more respect, even though it felt uncomfortable. They had more respect for me. They understood where it was coming from. They heard me. They never fired me either. The ones that right. fired me were the ones that I was like very tiptoeing around because I was worried they're going to fire. Those are the people that fire you. Yes. Those are the people. And and the thing is, is that people want and need that. But the only reason you're able to do that is because you've built the relationship with them that's yes. deep or deeper than just a material relationship that's all driven on performance and what you're doing investment wise. I want to know about their family. I tell them and I'm vulnerable with them about my family. So they know that I love them. They know that I'm there for them. And too many advisors, the reason that people will listen to this and advisors will, they'll be like, Matt, Joe, y'all are full of it, right? You're full of it is because they don't have a deep enough relationship because it's materialistic on paper about just being investment that they, if they were to do that, they would get fired because the person doesn't believe in the relationship deep enough for them to be able to do that, which gets to the whole psychology aspect. You got to totally build does. a relationship there. Well, and I think, and this is where Matt, I think that visualization process that we talked about with either the whiteboard, the 3d goggles, whatever you want it to be, whatever you want it to be with your Oculus, whatever, but that visualization thing. And for you to be the one to orchestrate that, I think sets the parameters that I'm not the money guy. I'm the values guy or the values woman, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the, I'm the person that leads you to this congruency in this dovetail between what you really want and what we're actually going for with our money. I think that's a, that's the sweet spot to be in. It's so spot on. And, and, you know, another, that, that the comments that you made prior to me talking a second ago was, was gold. I mean, it literally was gold because you touched on a, so many different things about being direct, but you talked about, you know, something that's interesting with regards to the experience starts in the lobby, right? You know, how the receptionist is, if they have Kramer on what you talk about in your book, which we're going to flip to here in a second, you know, that is such an interesting thing to think about that advisors just don't put any attention to. I mean, just think about it. If you're deep with your clients and you're using your technology the right way, you should know where your clients like to travel to, where they desire to travel to, you know, what they want to do in retirement, what they want to do in their life with their family today. 
think about that. If you have this, you know, when they walk in the travel channel, you have some clips and it's all about where they want to go, right? They want to go to Rome and Venice to better their relationship because their relationship at home is different, right? Whatever. (laughs) So they can be unhappy together there. (laughs) And you can let them know that they're going to be unhappy there, that they got to figure out other issues. But think about that. You walk into your financial advisors and it's all about this stuff that you care about. It's the golf, it's a recent golf highlights because they like to play golf. Like, that is called client experience, not having an online portal. That is not client experience. Yeah, right, right. right. That is such an incredible, that's gold for an advisor. I love can, that. Can I tell you where I got this idea from? I, 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 I love this book. There's a book called Steal Like an Artist by a guy named Austin Kleon. And, and I thought about this stuff before I read Austin's book, but he does a really good job of solidifying it that to, to get more creative about your business and to, and to make your business better, look at businesses outside of your realm. And I'll tell you, I went to my dentist who was for the first time and he was highly recommended to me, highly recommended. And I walk in and the first thing that the, that they do is, is they have like this celebration that I'm a new, new patient. They give me like a, like a free lunch at a, at a close by restaurant that everybody wants to go to. They take my picture, right. And make me feel special. And they have this board. These are all of our new patients board. And my picture went on that board with the new patient. It was literally like a Polaroid photo. Well, what was cool was then I go, I go in and I sit with the hygienist and the hygienist starts talking about what do I like? And I'm a fan of Disney. I'm, I'm, and by the way, the reason I'm a fan of Disney is for the same reason. I like watching these underpaid people take care of their guests, right? Mm. These magical moments, like how do they do that when it's not Mm. the pay scale, it is their culture. So what makes that culture, which is, you know, why I'm, I'm not in love with giving 16 bags of money to a mega corporation, but I, but I am in love with watching, watching people work who, who are, we're doing it for more than a paycheck. But anyway, So the next time I come back, I walk in the door and the receptionist looks me in the eye and goes, Joe, welcome back. So glad you're here. And I'm like, how the hell did she know who I was? Well, you know what? That thing that they impressed me with at the beginning, this new client photo was now a photo that was in my file. And they look at the photos before people come in just to see who they are so they can look me in the eye and call me by name. Mm. So while they told me it was to celebrate and it was to celebrate a new client or a new, a new, a new patient, it was also for them to continue that experience later. Then by the way, I sit down in the hygienist chair. How many people has she met with since she met with me, right? How many teeth cleans has she done? She immediately starts talking about taking her kid to Disney. And, and then I realized it's because in, in, in my file, they wrote Joe likes Disney. So talk to Joe about Disney, right? I will tell you that, that it got a little annoying later on because like the sixth time I went to get my teeth clean, they're talking to me about Disney. I'm like, okay, I know the trick. I know the magic (laughs) trick. So it, it, it became annoying later, but, but early on I was telling everybody to go to this dentist. I was like, this is a great, you should see this experience. You need to continue to build on that. Disney's for two two times, and then you got to ask about something else. You got to get different every single time. You know, dental hygienist is a different dentist is a different thing for me. I just don't understand why they talk to you and ask you questions when they have all the tools in your mouth. It just doesn't make sense. It's not a really good <laughs> timing is not their thing. I just don't understand it. Well, let's talk about your book. So you know, some you had some recent news about your book on some 
top lists at Forbes, Axios or Axiom. You know, you had some amazing credentials. Tell us about it. The name of the book is Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management. Tell us about the book. You do say things about how to find a good financial advisor. And given that our listeners are, are good financial advisors, what's, I would like to know maybe what are one or two of those things outside of the client experience in the lobby of what makes a good financial advisor? Because all of our people that listen here are great financial advisors. Yeah. Well, and I think that what hopefully my book does is makes more people financial advisor ready, right? Mm -hmm. It makes them ready for that experience and realizing that it's not about what you know, it's about what you do. And having those people in your corner is very helpful. But, you know, uh, we have three shows a week at Stacking Benjamins. I get to interview a lot of cool writers and talk to people writing finance books. And I I, I didn't see an on-ramp book that that was a, a very broad guide, but at the same time made it made some relatively complex topics palatable and 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 very simple for people. So the book the book actually is campy like our show is. You know our show's from my mom's basement, and that's meant by the way. The reason our show's live from my mom's half finished basement is when we started the show. I realized Matt that people are allergic to people that know what they're talking about. I don't know why, but if OG who's who's my co-host and 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 a certified financial planner and me as a former planner, if if we led with those credentials, people in the on-ramp for who knows what reason don't want to talk to those people. They want stories. They want experience. And so to make it much more palatable, we underplayed the fact that we know what we're talking about. In fact, for a while we had a, we had a uh, slogan that was, if you learn something, keep it to yourself because you'll ruin our reputation. And frankly, my goal is not, is not to teach people things on our show. Our goal is to be surround sound and make it fun. The inspiration for our podcast was car talk and the inspiration, which, which by the way, car talk for people who don't know was an NPR show that was on for a long time. These brothers click and clack, they called themselves. They would talk about cars. And I realized one day, Matt, I'm not learning anything about a car, but I'm having a blast. And then every time I would deal with cars later on, I would think fondly about car talk and it became easier to deal with it. So that's kind of where we position ourselves when it comes to money. This book, by the way, the inspiration for this book is the Hardy Boys Detective Manual meets the Cub Scout Wolf Guide. So you'll see that Stacked starts off with the easy achievements and they're all achievements at the beginning. The tough achievements are at the end. So the first quarter of the book are achievements about stacking your first Benjamin, how to get your visualization technique that we talked about, how to check your, your, your credit, get your debt cleaned up, get a, get a, get a financial foundation in place. And then the second part is the basics of investing called called stacking Benjamins. Then the third part is protecting your Benjamins because, and most people don't want to talk about risk management, but as you know, and advisors listening to this show know, that's a huge part. Um, and I think we actually do a pretty good job of explaining insurances in a non-biased way. Cause I, you know, you, you hear so many axes that people have and I just, you know, let's just tell people how insurance works and then they'll know for themselves how to make a good decision. And then the back end, 
which is about hiring advisors. We even go into the efficient frontier. Like we get really nerdy the last quarter. It's how to stack Benjamins on top of your Benjamins. And then those are for the real money nerds. So that was the idea of the book was let's make something kind of campy like our show is, but that's a wide guide that you don't necessarily read at one time, but you have it on the shelf so that you're much more likely to make some good decisions down the road. Incredible. And I'm sure they can buy that at Borders, Barnes and Noble, and maybe this new company that's coming out called Amazon, I think. Never is, heard of it. One of the new ones. Not sure an online bookstore will do anything. You think? Yeah, I don't know if it's going to make it. It eh. just, just just doesn't seem like it'll make it. Struggle. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we head out, I mean, I could talk with you for another you know hour and a half, but I know you've got other things that you need to do outside of talking to me. I know that this is your pinnacle of your day and your career, but we got to cut it off eventually. So the last piece that I always like to ask, and it kind of comes from Barron's where they always ask at their conferences, what's one, what's one actionable piece of advice that you would give our listeners today that they can go and act on to kind of better themselves, better their business, better their clients? What's one piece of actionable advice you'd give? Yeah. And I just learned this the last uh, couple of years. I have a, a coach who taught me this, which is ask who, not how. Do not ask how to do stuff. If you ask how to do it, you're going to get in the weeds. You're going to spend forever. Instead, ask either who has that knowledge that can teach it to you, who's the right teacher, or who can I delegate it to, right? Because I don't need to know everything about everything. If I know somebody that can take that off my hands. But if, if I need to do it myself, I still need the right teacher who's not going to waste my time. And ask who, not how, I think has sped up my success the past couple of years. Incredible. Incredible. Joe Sal Cihai, where can people find you? Yeah, you'll find me every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at the Stacking Benjamin Show. We call it the greatest money show on earth because it's a circus, as you know. <laughs> and, and you can find me possibly on tour. Come hang out with other money nerds. Stackingbenjamins.com slash stacked gives you all 40 cities we're going to. And yeah, that's going to be going through mid June. So, or late June. So come see me if I'm, if I'm not, if I'm in a city by you. Love that Joe. Amazing time, man. I really, really appreciate your generosity of spending time with us and your knowledge and wisdom and look forward to having you back on here uh, sooner than later. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 